0: Mark chapter 3. How many of you remember when you were kids getting picked for teams or games? Did you ever have that? You know, where, where you'd all line up and, um, and somebody had two captains, captain, second captain first choose and first captain second choose and whatever that meant, but they'd start picking. Okay, I know this was really traumatic for first service, and I don't even know if they recovered it by the end of service, but... <laughs> Um, you know, I asked this question, and I said, well, how many remember being picked first? And, and how, uh, there's one. Okay, how many? Is there anybody here that always got picked first? Man, we're a bunch of losers. <laughs> uh, is there, is, there's only a few of us. First service was the same, so now you're probably going to be traumatized, too. And, uh, oh, boy, we've got to go back, you know, go fetal position and all of that. How, how, how many remember getting picked in the middle of the pack? Okay, a little, yeah, now, yeah, a little better. How many never, how many got picked at the end? And admit it. There we go, okay. Some of us are really proud of that. How many never got picked, you know? You don't have to raise your hand. Well, Jesus picks a team, and we're gonna read about that today. And what I want you to know is Jesus picks you. Two 2,000 years ago, the story we're gonna to read today, Jesus is bringing together his team. And I want you to know that he, he picks you today. Some of you be sitting here saying, well, you know, you don't really know much about me, PT, and I don't know why Jesus had ever picked me. And by the way, how would I even know that he's picking me, that he would choose me to be on his team? Can I tell you how you know you're here today? And if you're a guest, or maybe it's your first or your 10th time or whatever, and you've always wondered, Does, do, do I really qualify? See, Jesus doesn't call uh, the qualified. He, call, he qualifies the call. And, and because you are here today, that is simply the number one first foundational evidence that Jesus says, I want you on my team. Because you would hear my voice to tell you that he's choosing you. But like when you were chosen for that team, you could have stayed back and said, nope, I don't want to be on your team. I want to be on this team or that team. You had to step forward and say, I want to be on your team be a part of your team. And it's the same with Jesus. Every person, Jesus says, I choose you. I call you to be mine. But you've got to respond. And that's what these guys had to do. Now, uh, let's look at the background here just real uh, quick. We'll start in verse 7 of chapter 3. It says, now Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea and there was a great multitude that followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea beyond the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon the great multitude came to him because they heard about everything he was doing remember his his fame is spreading then he told his disciples to have a small, small boat ready for him so the crowd would not crush him. So, I mean, these people were just on the seashore, and, and, and they're just crowding him. And he says, listen, i got to get away from that, otherwise they're probably going to push me in the water anyway. So he'd get in his boat, and then he would move back and have some room to be able to speak to them. Now, since he had healed many... All who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, those possessed, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Now, why is that? Scripture says in James chapter, uh, in James chapter two, that even the devils know Jesus and proclaim that he is the Lord. And we see it here and we see it throughout the gospels. And yet Jesus says, listen, hey, just keep it down. I don't need the publicity. Why would Jesus do that? I mean, if it's me, I'm thinking, yeah, let everybody know the demons, everybody. But you see, back in the Old Testament, in a couple of places, it's noted that people who were possessed, it was called, they were, they had the spirit of lie about them, spirit of lying, and that's what these these demonic beings have. If Jesus even said about Satan, he said he's the father of lies. And so probably the reason Jesus was kind of keeping a lid on the press clippings here is because he says, you know what, I really don't want liars and demon-possessed people proclaiming who I am because that might overshadow the message. And they would say, well, you know, how can we really trust the message if it's coming from a, a lying messenger? So that's probably what's going on there. Now he's, this is a transitional thing because remember it was for about four or five weeks we talked about how Jesus, he was being faced, he was being confronted with these religious leaders who were really beginning to get upset and jealous and ticked off because He was stealing their people. He wasn't really stealing. And his people just said, man, we finally found a rabbi we like and we can understand. And we enjoy his teachings and it makes sense and it helps our lives. And so they begin to lose their following to Jesus. And so every time that Jesus would go and set himself to teach, what would they do? They would sit and they would critique. And they would evaluate and they would begin to question him because they were trying to trap him in some kind of untruth. And so for five, we, we saw five stories where that's what took place, where these religious leaders were literally just taking on Jesus to, 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 to take him down and to confuse him and to confront him and hopefully get their people back. But what happened is, is Jesus had this wonderful, delightful way of being able to speak in such a way that he would shut them down. And it got so bad that we, uh, two weeks ago, we remember that uh, in verse six, what took place? It says finally they conspired and they were going to kill him. So here's this big transition now. Jesus is going to begin to move from the synagogue to the open air. He's no longer going to be in these places, but he's going to minister to the multi- He's going to continue to minister to the multitudes. And so he will still have to deal with these religious people, but now he's changing it up a little bit. And now he's going to, he's had the multitudes following him, but he's going to kind of tighten his inner circle. And he's going to call his followers. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Now, when Jesus went up to the mountain, he summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. He also appointed 12. So here, there's a group of people, we don't know how many, but we know uh, Gospel of Luke says that there were 70, I believe it was 70 that came to him, and then there was 12 that he said out of those 70, I'm going to appoint you as apostles. Apostles is someone who basically goes in the name of somebody, and, and they would eventually be church planters and planting churches in the book of Acts. So he appointed 12 and he named them as apostles. Now underline this in your Bible if you like to mark in your Bible, there's two things. He appointed them as apostles, number one, to be with him, and number two, to send them out to preach and to have authority over the demons. Now what he does here is he gives us the names of the appointed 12, he said to Simon, he gave the name Peter and we'll talk about that some other time about what that meant and why does Jesus change people's names. And then to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, and they were also known as the sons of thunder. To Andrew, uh, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and to Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here's his dream team. It's interesting because I don't really think they're truly a dream team from the world's perspective, even from the perspective of that day. Like everyone, these guys had to respond to Jesus and his choice of them. He calls them up and it says they came. They had to make a choice to go to this mountain and to come and to choose to follow him. They could have walked away just like so many people do today. And I love how the Bible, though, this passage gives me incredible hope as a leader, as a Christ follower for Jesus. Because it's so amazing when you think about it. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Don't you think he probably could have done a much more effective job of evangelizing and reaching the world by himself than calling a bunch of knuckleheads like them and us, or I'll say me today? I'm sure he could have. But he understands. He says, you know something? I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. And I'm going to go be in heaven with the Father where there's going to be this communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit and himself. And he understands that to reach this world, he's going to have to pass the baton to others. But what I love about these guys who, I'm surprised they would ever become his brain trust, but they were his delegated uh, apostles, the ones who would go out. They became very effective at what they did because of Jesus' touch. Jesus knew he had to send them out for their growth and for the growth of the kingdom. The Christian faith began as a group. And these guys are just so much like you and me, loved ones. I mean, we're, aren't we really able to identify with them? I mean, these guys, you peel back as you read their story. You don't see it here, you just see names. But as you read their story man, you quickly see there's not a stained glass guy. There's not a stained glass gal in the midst of them. They don't speak in God tones. They don't speak Christian AEs. They are simply the rank and file people like you and me. are trying to pay a mortgage. They're trying to do their job. They're trying to raise a family. But God says, I choose you. So he starts with this little group, literally a small group of 12 guys that follow Jesus. Can I tell you something? <clears throat> this is really important to hear. When you follow Jesus, when you make a choice to follow Jesus, you are never called to go solo. You are never called to be a solo sapien follower of Jesus. When he calls people, he doesn't say, hey, come follow me just by yourself. He always wants us in community. That's part of the reason why when we tried this little table um, uh, adventure for three weeks, it became a three-year thing because we begin to understand what the, these are little communities. Even if it's only for an hour and 15 minutes, each Sunday it becomes like a little community where each Sunday you can get to know better people face to face. So none of us are called to follow Jesus alone. Let me tell you how important this is because I see a lot of people that don't make it because they try and do it all by themselves because they, you know, they, they don't want to be involved in a group. But there was a group of us yesterday that met with a, a Creekside guy whom we love, but he's going through some significant struggles. And there was a group of guys that come together probably um, almost three months ago now. And we said, how can we help our brother? And so yesterday was a time where we got together, and it was a t- kind of a check-in time where there's about seven of us that met with him. And it's where we come, and... And we say, you know something, we got to hold our brother accountable. We got to check in with him. We got to talk to him. We got to hear from him. And we got to challenge him while we encourage him, pray for him. Because, see, this is a, a, a beloved brother to these guys. These are guys that he said, I want to be part of my accountability group. And while maybe not everybody obviously has to go that far, but what we are learning as a church. Everybody needs people around them because we all face and go through difficult issues in life. And it's amazing when people go through difficult issues and struggles and hurtful times how easy it is to simply slide and fade away from the church. And ultimately, a lot of people shipwreck their faith. And that's why it's so important, loved ones. Jesus never called us to be alone. Christianity is a team sport. A lot of you know my background and you know, I grew up, I loved basketball. I lived in this trailer park, and it's really where I learned how to, to sh- I'd shoot hoops literally three and four hours a day by myself and dreaming of becoming an NBA player. But in my senior year in high school, I was playing against some guys who ultimately went to the NBA, and the revelation hit me. This was my revelation. I lacked the size, the skill, the speed, and the talent to ever get there. Not fun when you're a high school senior. But I continued to play and I continued to shoot and it was great. And but you know what I really loved? As much as I enjoyed those times by myself, I always loved the games. Putting on the uniform, having the crowd there, the clock going. I just loved the games. You know why? Because it was about a team. It's about passing, it's about shooting, it's about rebounding, it's about encouraging, it's about beating another team. Can I tell you it's the same as true as a Christ follower? You can practice all the time, all by yourself. And what I mean by that is you can pray and you can read your Bible, you can journal, you can meditate, you can do all of those Christian disciplines. And hear me, loved ones, I hope you do because that's what's gonna foster growth and help you to ultimately grow. But we play this game together with others. The American church makes it so easy today in America for people to simply go to church and to spectate and have a courtside seat to what's going on, but never called to check in, put the uniform on, and participate. It's just kind of come in, get your hour and a half shot, and then go home, and that's it. But you see, this is, most of us would say this, but if you really understand the church, and I'm not talking about this building, I'm talking about you and me. The church is really anybody that is blood-bought by Christ and they have stepped over the line and said, not only have I accepted you choosing me, but I choose you. And it's at that point where you no longer should be a spectator with a nice courtside seat, but you should be the greatest participant where you're strapping on the uniform of a Christ follower every day looking to serve the living god in whatever way you can out there and yes even in here. And and this whole thing about the team and as we see Jesus get his 12 people around us, his little small group, that's why we challenge people in the fall and during throughout the year to be involved in a small group. Why is that? Because we're not meant to do it alone. Well, it's just me and my spouse. Well, that's good. But what about when you and your spouse have difficult times? Our church is big enough now, it's always surprised me. There's been times when I've found out people are going through something and they're in the divorce courts before I ever find out. Why is that? It's because they're not in community. They don't have people around them to speak into their life and to give them hope and to pray with them and maybe, maybe even to counsel them through things. That's why in the fall, we're going to have sign-ups for growth groups. And I want to challenge you to begin orca, uh, organizing and thinking in, in or, your life to be involved in a small group come the end of September. And maybe just kind of as an entry point, and we use it for this, get your feet a little bit wet, you know, up to your ankles or whatever. Do chilling and grilling this summer. It's only three times, once a month beginning in July. Once in July, once in uh, August, and once in September. What are those for? They're simply to build connection points for Creeksiders or for people maybe that are newer to come and say, you know something, I need to know a little bit more about the people in the church here. But listen, loved ones, we're not called to be solo sapiens in the life of Jesus. Remember John 17? Remember the very specific prayer that Jesus prayed for his followers prior to checking out? A lot of us may not remember it, but it was simply this. Jesus said, I pray. And he took a whole chapter to say, my prayer is this, is that the body of Christ, my followers, my disciples, that there would be unity among them, that it would be so strong that it would be like the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Godhead that lives in community. Community. His prayer is be that that they would honor each other's uniquenesses and differences while maintaining oneness. And and, and I gotta say this, just really to encourage you that you know, Creekside really does well at that. That's what I love about this church. There's diversity and yet there's really strong unity. You don't have to look or smell or think or taste or uh, whatever. You don't have to be a cert- dress a certain way. You don't have to be a certain way to come to Creekside. You can fit in basically whoever and wherever you are. And that is so important because if you begin to become narrow-cast, you begin to marginalize certain people who would come in, but you do that well. So why is Jesus's focus on on uh, the focus of his prayer on unity. And we're talking about unity, not uniformity. But unity where there can be distinct differences, yet we get along and we understand the mission is more important than our own personal distinctives. Because Jesus understood human nature. He says, be staying united and making a united effort to make a, a, a united uh, difference is really difficult. Why? Well, because of our diversity, because of our gender differences, because of our race and ethnic makeups, because of our social and our economic lines. Jesus knew that these were not only to be issues that would plague culture and society, but oh, they would be played out so divisively in his church. And there are churches loved ones that I go to. They can't get along. Man, you got the Hatfields on one side and the McCoys on the other, and they fight and they think that that's Godly or something. I'm so thankful that that's not how we live. And I want you to see just the this incredible diversity that Jesus chose in his foundational closest followers. I mean, it's the A team, the dream team that he drafted. For instance, his guys, look at Peter and John. I love these guys. You know why? Because I'm not very competitive, never have been. And um, so that's not true. I'm pretty competitive. And so I love this story about Peter and John. It says on the day that Jesus resurrected, John 20, verse 4. This is the writer John. He, he, he's kind of humble because he doesn't say his name, but this is what he says. They both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and right, reached the tomb first. That is classic guy stuff. Competition. I've won. I beat you. Ha, ha, ha. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to write about it. You know, I love that. So he does it and you kind of, John and another just he had to be pretty competitive maybe just because he was young but uh, throughout his gospel he also says this when he refers to himself he says the disciple whom Jesus loved it's kind of like saying you know what I'm kind of the head dude you know me and Jesus right there and and, and i love that competitiveness because they're so real cuz sometimes we forget how real these guys are Well, then there's two other disciples, Thomas and Nathaniel. Man, they're opposites in temperament. Remember Thomas, he's rational. He's doubting Thomas. He's the one, you know, in the upper room. After Jesus resurrects, all the disciples are excited. We've seen him. He's risen. He's alive. He goes, no, I don't believe it. I I, got to see it before I believe it. I got to touch his hands. I got to feel his side. He is pragmatically, his, he's pragmatic. His emotional temperature very seldom runs hot. He's data-oriented. Show me the facts. i got to see it to believe it. That's his response to the resurrection. He is truly a spiritual Spock. Okay? You know, it's just, it's just give me the facts, man. It's, it's something else. He's, that's the way he is. You caught that. Good. Now, that, that's, that's Thomas. But then Nathaniel, you'll read about him in John chapter 2. What is he? He's emotional. He's excitable. He, first time he sees Jesus, he's excited. Oh, Jesus. And what's he do? He goes and he gets people and brings them to Jesus. Because he's so excited. He's emotionally charged. Now there's Matthew. And Simon the Zealot. Literally, this is a left winger and a right winger. Matthew chose, uh, Jesus chose Matthew. He's a despised traitor. He worked for the Roman government. He's part of a group called the Herodians. They supported King Herod's rule, the Roman rule in Galilee. He collected tax. He was, your, he was an IRS agent. And he lined his pockets by ripping off his own people. I mean, would you really want to spend three years with an IRS agent? Hey, uh, uh, Simon, let me check your, uh, let me do a little audit here. You know, I don't know if he did that, but uh, who'd want to spend three years like that? Well, then Jesus chooses Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots, they were a fiercely loyal Jewish patriots, Jewish nationalists. They hated the Romans. And they were determined to overthrow Roman rule in Israel, whatever it took, violence or, or, or insurrection. They just wanted to get rid of the Herodians and the Roman rule. So get this Jesus picks polar opposites politically to be part of his early band of brothers. You know what this would be like? And this isn't a political statement either way, so don't read into it. It's just an example. But this would be like putting, would be saying, okay, on my team, I think I'll have, I think I'll take Rush Limbaugh and Nancy Pelosi. You see what I'm saying? And, 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 and that's what Jesus did. You know why I think? He says, I want you to see that everybody has value. It doesn't matter where they line politically or professionally or socioeconomically. Your call is to get along. And I'm gonna fashion a team that is so off the charts different that you gotta believe that you can do it and know that you are to do it. I mean, think about James and John. They're called the sons of thunder for a reason. Luke chapter 9 tells us they're walking through this town. Jesus is doing what he does. He's healing and he's touching and he's teaching and he's encouraging and he's loving and he's blessing. But the people aren't responding. And so what did James and John do? They say, listen, Lord, how about, listen, these people aren't responding. They're not waking up. They're not, they're not, they're not taking the message in. How about if we just call down thunder and fire from heaven and just incinerate this little city <laughs> sons of thunder what does jesus say he goes <clears throat> uh, guys you're kind of missing the spirit of what we're doing here and he says basically a paraphrase you're not going to respond so this is what i want you to do just kind of uh, you know brush the feet it brush the sand off your feet and keep going and you know what's really powerful about that john of James and John, the sons of thunder, you know what he does? He becomes the apostle of love. Why? Because of his interaction with Jesus. Last one, how about Matthew and Judas Iscariot? So Matthew, as we talked about, he's the IRS agent, so he was probably fairly skilled in mathematics as a tax collector. He would have been totally qualified to handle the disciples' money. He could have easily have been the CFO and taken care of it and kept track of it. But what does Jesus do? He picks Judas, a traitor. And then he says, Judas, not only are you a traitor, but I'm going to give you the money bags to watch over for the group. And then after, uh, as, as Jesus is getting ready to die in John chapter 12, it's noted. John notes that Judas was probably pilfering from the bag. Now, if you're these disciples and you've got idea of that, can you imagine how Matthew would have felt, probably been a little bit upset, probably a little jealous of him getting to be the guy handling the purses? Because you know what they say, whoever handles the money has the power. So can you imagine that he would have felt slighted as the guy that really has the mathematical acumen and it's given to Judas? And yet Jesus takes these guys and he begins to shape them and change them. So what's our call? See, loved ones, you and I, we, Creekside is a diverse group as well, and we got to honor that. I honor that, and I love that about Creeksiders. There's many different churches that are diverse as well, aren't they? And I don't think we do this, but it's always important to, to never look down on churches out there. They have their purpose and their cause. We hope that they're reaching the loss for Jesus, but that's their responsibility, and we can never become haughty or arrogant because we think we're the right kind of church or we're doing it the right way or anything like that. Because Jesus uses diversity. And we not only have to honor it within here, but we've got to honor it out there. We want to have the heart and the spirit of Jesus. He says his prayer is for unity. Remember John chapter 13? Uh, Jesus is getting ready to serve communion in what's taking place. The guys are there. He's getting ready to serve them the bread and the cup. It's his last meal with them, and what is Jesus here? The guys are talking about who's going to carry the big stick? Who's the big dog? Who's going to take over? And so what does Jesus do? And this is, I love how Jesus just does the right thing in every situation. He basically goes over, he picks up a towel and a basin that nobody used, and he starts washing the disciples' feet. And pretty soon, oh, Jesus can't, do it. no, no, no. I'm going to start it, I'm going to finish it. And he finishes all of that. And then what does he do? He gets up and he looks at them and he, and he goes, and by the way, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Yes, you love one another, even as I have loved you, so that the world may know that I am real and true. See, some people think, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus, yeah. We're gonna love like Jesus and we're gonna just, you know, we're gonna die and give ourselves to things. No, he hasn't died yet when he says that. He's saying that, why? Because he says, I want you to serve. I want you to don the towel of a servant and begin to serve people around you. That's how they're gonna know, two ways. The world out there is gonna know that we are followers together, committed to him Because of our love for one another and our unity in the midst of our diversity. See, that's the litmus test. Unity and diversity, love in the midst of our flaws and failures and faults. And before the church loved ones can ever go out there, it's got to be united in here. See, what's the one thing that kept them united in the midst of their diversity? One thing. Every one of these guys stood up And said yes when Jesus called. That's the uniting factor, and that's what it's gotta be here. But now, Jesus calls them and they respond. I want you to see what Jesus calls them to. Go back to that verse I said, underline this. His call was simply to himself. When Jesus called them to follow, He's calling them into a relationship before the mission. He says, I choose you to be with me. Scripture literally says he chose them to be with him. Of his followers, he chose these 12 guys. And he says, I'm going to trust you with this message and the mission. But first, I want you to come and be in relationship with and to know me. Did any of you own a business? You don't need to raise your hand. But if you own a business... If, you, if, you ha- if the business is yours, one day, one of three things will happen. You'll either close it, you'll sell it, or you'll pass it on. If you close it, you know what, that's the end of it. If you sell it, it now becomes somebody else's issue or problem. But if you pass it on, you know what, you're still invested. Because once you sell it, you're going to look around, you're going to go, wow, I want that to succeed. I want it to move forward. Because it literally becomes kind of part of your legacy. See, even our church council, we're we're talking now about a succession plan for when I'm finished here. Because too many churches that have, have what have what we go have, have what we're going and kind of the, the focus and the DNA and the culture and the and the financial foundation and the spirit. If you don't find somebody that can continue that, they gotta be different. They're not looking for a Terry clone, but somebody that understands the culture and the DNA the thing can blow up really quickly, and I work with churches and see it all the time, but it happens in business too. So how do you do that? Well, this is what we're doing. This is part of our plan. This is part of what I'm thinking about. You've got to find a successor who can continue the business. What do you do when you find them? Well, we haven't found one yet, but we're sure looking, and every time we add staff or our present staff, we're thinking, could this be the person? That's why it's so important that I am with my staff. That's why it's so important that in this year and through the years now that not only am I with them, but I'm teaching them, I'm training them, I'm depositing the life of Creekside and the life of Jesus in them, and I'm, and I'm telling them and showing them and leading them and casting vision about who Creekside is and where we're going so that there's going to come a day when I can pass the baton to them and say, go get it. It'll look different. It'll feel different, but it'll still have the culture and the DNA. And see, that's what Jesus did here. Jesus came, loved ones, to give, to give his life to us, to redeem a fallen world, to bring us back to God. And he wanted these disciples to catch his heart. And the way he did that was he gave him his heart. By how? By he says here, I want to be with you and you're going to be with me. Centuries later, fast forward 2014, the baton has been passed to you and me. The mission that Jesus passed on to them is now in our hands. And our first job, loved ones, like them, you know what it is? It's to be with Jesus. Before we even do, we got to be with him. Why? Because the reason I kind of gave you that dossier, that portfolio on the disciples, is because Jesus had to work through all of that stuff. So that when they go out, they weren't preaching uh, what the Herodians would preach, or you know, Matthew still wasn't trying to you know take people on and line his pockets with their finances with it, with, with their finances for his gain. But it all became about Jesus and the mission. But that t- took time for Jesus to work in them to invest in them, and that's who we are today, loved ones. Do you have a friend, a close friend? I mean, you're just re- your best friends. What do they call them, BFF? Do you have one of those? Some of you are married, you've been married. How did you become BFFs? What, what motivated you to get married? For most of us, for in, in either of those categories, it was, I, I want to I spend time with somebody, I want to be with somebody, I want to give myself to somebody, I want someone to give themselves to me and be an encouragement. That's what we do. I mean, for Trina and I, What do we do? Well, we um, sit, we eat together. We jog together. We sleep together. We do the yards together. We do laundry together. We do dishes together. We eat together. We go to church together. We'll drive places together. We do all of these things. And all of those things are just taking, uh, taking place in the course and exchange and interchange of life and we're busy and we're going and we're doing and we do do a lot of things together. But you know what we need to have is then we need to have focus time. So a number of years ago, Trina and I established that Friday night would be our date night. So we try not to hardly let anything interrupt that unless it's a a major issue or problem or something. What do we do on that date night? We're not, we're not just driving around and, and life carrying on. We say this is what we're going to do. If we stay home, we'll close the blinds and we'll sit at the dinner table and we'll just eat together and linger over dinner and talk. Talk about life, where we want to go, what we want to do. Or we'll go out to a restaurant and do the same thing. But it is her and my time that is uninterrupted, nobody's around, and it becomes a very intimate time of us learning about and growing together. And I, and I, I want to you know, parenthetically add this, that if you're married, you need to be doing that. You need to find time. Maybe it's only twice a month, but you need to find that time to grow together. Talk beyond just the hustle and bustle of life. Can I tell you something? Even as a guy, I find my relationship with Jesus much like that. I try and build my relationship with Jesus just like I do with my wife. So when I get up in the morning, usually before I get out of bed, first thing I say, Jesus, I just just give me wisdom for today. I I just want your touch upon my day. Make me aware of whatever. It's just a simple prayer. I pray it almost every day. Then I get up. And then I usually walk over to my, uh, my little study, my little office at our home. And that's where I'll begin to do the, the date time with Jesus, so to speak. See, when I'm with Jesus, I, I, I can be with him every day, all day. I get up and say that little prayer. And during the day, I'm going, I'm, I'm just talking to him. If you ever see me talking to myself, I'm talking to Jesus. Because I don't talk to myself. I talk to Jesus. I don't hear, well, I do hear his voice, but I don't hear voices or anything, so it's not weird. But I talked to him. I mean, even just golfing yesterday, a couple of guys, I, 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 I voiced this audibly, Jesus, God, I just thank you for being out here. You know, and then a few minutes later, I say, oh, God, just help me on this shot. You know? <laughs> And I know, and I, and I don't do that very often because I know he's saying, you're on your own, buddy. And uh, I got bigger things to do. But, but I do, I just, I just kind of have this dialogue if I'm driving. Lord, I just thank you for where I live. I thank you for the people. I pastor, I pray you'd bless the blums and the blumquists and any other bees in the church, you know, and, 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 I, and, I, and that's what I do. And I hope you have that kind of a relationship with Jesus. Because that's kind of what it means in First Thessalonians, where it says, "Pray without ceasing." That's how you do that. You just kind of have this ongoing dialogue. It's really where you say, "I am in the presence of God." 24 /7. But just like I need to have that time with my wife, face to face, no interruptions, no life going on around us in a major way, I, I do that with Jesus, too. After I get out of bed, i said my little prayer. Then I go into my office and I just begin to read the word. It's before I come to work because once I get here, you know, the afterburners come on and it's about Mach 2 and gets to Mach 4 by about noon. So I got a lot to do. So in the morning, this is my way of just kind of calibrating my heart and my soul. And I just sit down and I begin to read and follow the daily plan usually that we have and give you. And then a lot of times I'm, I'm journaling less, but I'm journaling a thought here and there. You know what I'm doing now? I'm journaling less, praying less about me and my needs and my wants and my desires. And now I'm asking this question, Jesus, what would you say to me today? I'm really trying to turn it more into a dialogue than a monologue. And after I asked that question, I literally, I just, I just sit two, maybe three minutes and, and, and just kind of quiet my own soul so that maybe, just maybe I can hear a voice of the Spirit speak something and if He does, then I can write it down. You all need that. We all need that. And that's what Jesus is really saying when He says, come and be with me. Now I know some of you are probably saying, ah, PT, come on, man don't you got a better message than that? Can I tell you something? I don't. I said this since as long as I've been here. If I left here tomorrow, if the one thing you got from me was the belief and then the activity that you could hear the voice of the Lord through this and this, then I would have done my job as a pastor. And that's why I will... Remind you and challenge you of this until the day I'm done here. Because that's what Jesus says. Before you go out, get in with me. That's what he says to his first followers. Before you go out, get in with me. Now, but it can't stop there. Because then Jesus, he called them and he calls you and me for a purpose. After he pointed them, he says, be with me. Why? Because then I'm going to send you out. See, in the first part of our text today, we read that Jesus preached and he healed and he fed people. So now he picks a team to send them out and to do what he is doing. He picks them for a mission. Remember what Jesus said in John 20, verse 21? He said, even as the Father has sent me, And he said in John earlier, I have accomplished his will. I have done what he's called me to do. And then he says this in John 20. Now I send you and you and you and you and you and you and you. That's why this isn't a spectator sport. Every one of us from this choosing here and until Jesus comes or we all die, we're called to go. We're sent ones. We're to be with Jesus so we can learn and grow and be changed and learn about the mission. But see, the church often does this, and, it's, and a lot of times it's personality or people. But sometimes some people spend too much with Je- time with Jesus and they never go out. Or there's some people that always go out and they never spend time with Jesus. The people that never spend time with Jesus and go out, they're going to burn out they're going to be the ones that are going to probably fall away fairly quickly. The ones that never go out and just simply spend time with Jesus, they're going to become spiritual eggheads and they're going to live in a bubble because they're going to try and isolate themselves from a needy world. Do you understand, loved ones, why Jesus died for us? And then after we cross the line and choose him, do you know why he leaves us here? One reason for his purpose and mission You've heard me say it before. If it wasn't for that, he would say, come home now and be with me. He doesn't leave us here even just to take care of our kids. He leads us here to help our kids get on mission. He leaves us here to get people around us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus called his men then, these followers, to follow him with great diversity and he brought them together. Why? So that these men would turn an upside down world right side up. (laughs) Friends, because of Jesus Christ and his cross, you know we're all sinners. We're saved by grace. And this is what I want our church to never forget. Lord, remind us of why we're here. Never let us forget the grace that you've given us and now you are changing us so we look more like you so when we go out there, we can reach people for you. Today, two things. Probably talking to two people here today. Some here, you've probably never really engaged in the most eternal mission in the world and that loved ones is the church that's you and me together fulfilling the mission of Christ we would probably all mentally and verbally say we're in the highest stakes game in town there's eternal there's eternal issues on the line we would say that but we don't live it and Jesus comes again to remind us this is what it's about growing in me, being with me, being on mission. Uh, the best way to illustrate this is I, um, I, I told you about my basketball, and, and there's a picture here I wanted you to, that I, I, uh, I kept this. This kind of rocked my boat back in 1980. It was 34 years ago, May 9th. It says here, the Oregonians, 1980 All-Metro Area All-Stars. Uh, I have a lot of mentors in my life, and um, when I was in high school, my senior year, we got a new coach. His name was jim bear he 's the guy that 's in the uh, uh, kneeling in the first row in the middle. great, great basketball coach. When I was growing up through, my, uh, through junior high and high school, we had really a, a really good team didn 't lose a lot of games until my sophomore and junior year. And it's because in my sophomore and junior year, we had these two new coach. One was a new coach my, soft, my, my sophomore year, and then my varsity coach, our junior was just really a doofus. It's a nice way to put it. And so we hardly won any games, and, and literally he got fired because our team was supposed to be so much better. Jim Bear came my senior year, and the first part of the year was pretty rocky. The second half of the season, we started winning but we didn't do nearly what we were supposed to. Back in 1980, this is five years after I graduated, this is a, he became coach, uh, coach of the year in the metropolitan Portland area because he took Clackamas High School to the state tournament for the first time in years. This is what he, in the newspaper article, and this is kind of what really, I, I keep this with me, I keep it in my office, and I read it fairly regularly to remind me of something. This is what he said. He uh, said, as he became the, uh, the head coach at Clackamas my senior year, he said, the first thing we attacked was the attitude business, Bear said. That's always been my philosophy to work hard to set goals and then to work hard to reach goals. And this is what really slapped my, my sails that day when I read this. He said, the first group of kids I had at Clackamas was a very talented group, but there are so many other things than pure physical talent that we had to work on in those early years, things like attitude, poise, and confidence. And those things are hard to develop, and we're still working on them. Did you hear what he said? It's kind of like a backhanded compliment. He said, I had a great, really talented group of players, but that's all they had. They didn't have character. They didn't have poise. They didn't have confidence. Every Sunday, I look out over you, and I feel like a coach. And I go, there's so much talent here. And there's so many gifted people that are using their gifts. But then I think, what more could we do? Because I look out here and I see all this talent. And sometimes some people, they, probably some of you are mad right now because I'm talking about this because you know you really haven't stepped up and been a part of what God wants to do at Creekside and in our community. And sometimes, I, I, I go back and read this because I never want to forget, talent doesn't get you anywhere. For the long term, it's character, it's poise, it's confidence in what God can do through you. And you may be talented, but God says, I want you to yield that to me. Don't let your fears, don't let your insecurities hold you back from becoming the best you that I can make you. So some of you today, I believe God would speak to you and say, I've chosen you. Time to step up. Move past attitudes or insecurities to let me work in you, through you, put you on mission. The second group is simply those who have never stepped across the line, questioned God choosing you. And I would say today, you're hearing my voice. He died for your sins. And never doubt what he can do with a fully yielded life to him. Just read about those guys I told you about. He can change your life. He can transform you. But you gotta say this.